This week marks the 25th anniversary of the Global Living Church of God. It was about this time that the uh, that Dr. Meredith began what we know of as the Global Church of God. Right at the end of December and the first week in January was the, I guess you might say, the official start of the Global Church of God. I'd like to take a trip down memory lane today, and the title of the sermon is 25 Years Keeping God's Word, Not Denying His Name. We'll kind of take a circuitous route to get there, but in the 1920s, God began working with a man by the name of Herbert W. Armstrong. There are those today who would like to distance themselves from Mr. Armstrong, We don't. We don't worship him as some individuals do, but we recognize that God used that man with all of his strengths and weaknesses to bring the church to a level that it hadn't been at in quite a long time. The Church of God Seventh Day was in shambles at the time. It was splintering, and it was time to raise up a new era. And we do believe in eras of the church. And God used that man to raise up what we believe is the Philadelphia era of the church. At the time of his death, in 1986, the church had grown immensely. Over 150,000 people were attending the Feast of Tabernacles. We were sending out We're giving away over 8 million Plain Truth magazines every month. We had big choirs. We had large festival sites with 10 or more thousand people in some cases in countries all around the world. But upon the death of Mr. Armstrong in January of 1986, the church began to go very rapidly in a different direction. His successor and those that were surrounding him took the church in a radically different direction. And that church no longer exists as the church of God. They don't even call it the church of God anymore. And it went into apostasy and Protestantism, no longer the church of God. We were surprised by what happened, but we should not have been. Because we find in the scriptures that this has been a pattern over and over again. For example, in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was talking to the elders at Ephesus, or meeting them, the elders from Ephesus, meeting them at a certain location. And in Acts, the 20th chapter, in defending what he had done, He said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's a statement that Dr. Meredith grabbed a hold of. It's something that I think that many of us just read right over. But the whole counsel of God, not just the Sabbath and the holy days. But Paul did not shun to declare to them the whole counsel of God. 
Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. It is truly the church of God, not some other name, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, he understood that. If you go back to Deuteronomy, you see that Moses understood that the children of Israel go into apostasy. And yet we also know that it doesn't have to go into apostasy every time there's a change of leader. As Joshua was faithful, not only Joshua, but the elders that outlived Joshua, they stayed faithful at that time, even though there were many problems among the children of Israel all through that time. But there were faithful leaders. We also have the example of Elijah and Elisha. And so the church does not have to apostatize every time there's a change of a leader. But nevertheless, we have to understand that there is a spirit being out here who wants to, I'll use the word, distract us, who wants to help us to lose our focus or never have the right focus. And if you have not heard Mr. McNair's Bible study of last night, I really encourage you to do so. It was a quite a statement And I certainly have felt that way a long time about our activities, that they need to be properly focused. But he put it in a in a way that was, I think, very interesting, a lot of depth to it, something that you could just sit there and listen to and say, oh, well, okay, we know that. We should have, you know, make sure that God is in it and uh, that we're learning and, and so forth. But I hope that we will understand that that was a statement about the kind of activities we have. You know, we're going to continue to have activities such as this. We're going to continue to have an educational program. We're not sure what we may name it, but the homes that have been donated for our use here in Charlotte are going to be there, and we are going to continue with a work-study program that will begin this fall. And so there is a space for young people who would like to come down and learn more in-depth about the Bible and about Christian living. It would like to have the opportunity to perhaps work part-time in the church. And sometimes that can turn into a full-time job for some people. We're going to continue with our summer camps. We're going to continue with these types of activities and many others. But we always want to look at it from the focus. What is the purpose We must never forget what the purpose of these activities are because, and worldwide, as many of you know, we had some of the best programs you could ever imagine. I worked at summer camp at Orr, Minnesota for a number of years and also for one session down in Big Sandy, Texas. And, of course, was involved with the Global, helping start the Global Church of God uh, camp that we had in Missouri in 1995. And also in, here in North Carolina, near Siler City for two years. And then I forget the number of years, but uh, also up in Michigan. And the one that we had there in Minnesota as well. 
So we want to have these activities, but we want to know why we have them, and we want to make sure, as the sermonette said, that we do not allow them to distract us from our purpose. We must have the right focus in all these things that we do. And Jude, the third verse, Jude 3, It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith which was once for all. And we must contend for that continually. Because it is so easy to get distracted, isn't it? The message of that sermonette. The message of the Bible study last night. I think I'm beginning to see a theme. And frankly, the sermon I had prepared was not fully prepared, but I ended up changing it all this morning. Because it wasn't coming together. And when things don't come together, you begin to ask yourself questions. Who's preparing it? Now, some of the things I wanted to talk about really fit in with distractions But more than distractions, I want to talk tomorrow in the seminars about some of these cell phones and so forth and some information that is coming out by the very founders of some of the technologies that we have. Not so much the technologies, but the the means by which they do it. But I'll have the opportunity to talk to parents and to teens, and we'll save that for tomorrow. But we need to understand that it is so easy to get distracted. There is a spirit being out there who's very crafty. And he can take a good thing and turn it into a bad thing. And sometimes you don't even realize that it's a bad thing. You know, the most dangerous thing is that which is not obvious. When you go to a movie, if you go in there, I remember some teenagers some one or two might be here. I'm not sure. Um, wanted to take my wife and I out to dinner and after services. And so when teenagers want to take you out, you, you do so if it's all possible. And we went, I think they were going to take us to, um, uh, what is that? Uh, oh, the Mexican place. Uh, uh, yeah. Not the high-class place, but the uh, common one. Taco. Taco Bell. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But we got there, but they had a plumbing problem, so we decided not to stay. And I said, well, let's just get some pizza and we'll take it over to the house, which we did. And when the Sabbath was over, they said, hey, we want to go to a movie. You want to join us? Well, I'm not crazy about going to a late-night movie. It wasn't that late, but it was late enough as you get older. And... uh, so he said, sure, what do you want to see? Well, the girls wanted to go to see The Mummy. That, that was back a number of years ago. Not the, I think there's a newer one. I don't know. I, somebody kind of said something about that. Anyway, it was the older one. And um, that didn't sound interesting. So the guys wanted to see a different movie. Now, I thought it was going to be a comedy. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say what it was. Uh, I won't say what it was. Oh, now you're curious. Say, don't do that to me. <laughs> okay. Show how ignorant I was. It was Austin Powers. 
the spy who shagged me. I lasted about nine minutes longer than I should have. I was there about ten minutes. And after buying popcorn and all that sort of thing, I walked out. I couldn't, I, I could not take it. And I talked to the parents later on. Do you have any idea what your kids are watching? Saturday nights when they go to the movies? Now, some of you obviously know what it was about because you're laughing. Uh, you may not have seen it, but you have some idea. Well, I didn't find it very funny because everything was a sexual innuendo, at least for everything I saw. And they, some stayed and they said it, it went downhill from there. How much a part of the world can we become? You know, this week marks the continuation of something, the continuation of the church of God. After Mr. Armstrong's death, his successor took it back into Protestantism. And this reminds me a little bit, because of where they are, of 1 Kings, the 12th chapter. And I'll just turn over there briefly. 1 Kings 12. I'm not going to read much, but this is a story of Jeroboam and how when Israel separated from Judah, he was afraid that they would go back, and so he changed their worship. So I'll just read here in verse 32. So Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. Well, it was very similar. It was just one month later. A little more convenient. The crops would certainly be in by then. It was like the feast that was in Judah. And they offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did a so he did a Bethel sacrificing the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar. Verse thirty three, First Kings twelve thirty three, which he had made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And that's exactly what Worldwide did. In some places especially, to this day, they still keep a feast in the, well, around October. Sometimes it's from one weekend to the next. Never quite the same. They may call it a feast of Thanksgiving, as they do in Canada sometimes, or a celebration of Christ. They'll call it anything but what it is but they'll do so to hang on to people who can't recognize the difference, who have forgotten the lesson of 1 Kings, the 12th chapter. <clears throat> Sometimes the hardest things to, to recognize are the most subtle things. I remember watching a movie, Cool, cool Runnings, I think it is, about the Jamaican bobsled team. And we went there, and it was a cute little movie in a lot of ways. It was based on somewhat of a true story. And one particular individual who knows that I am usually disappointed by movies asked me the question, well, what was wrong with that one? (laughs) And I said, plenty. Oh, what was that? Well, the young man was disrespecting his father. That was a great deal of the theme of the movie. And she said was he was disrespectful. He was the kind of person that would be disrespected. In other words, he was a jerk. And I said, yes, but Hollywood wrote him in to be 
a jerk. Now, make no mistake, those things affect people. We look at Walt Disney movies and we say, oh, they're wonderful. I'm not against all these things. I'm just saying that we need to see these things with our eyes wide open. Disney movies, if you think about the themes, I'm going way back. The kids are smarter than the parents. The girls usually are the ones who are leading. And they've got all this cute little, uh, what would you call it, uh, magic and all that type of thing thrown in. And we say, it's harmless. We need to know who the God of this world is. Because these things, over a period of time, when you get it over and over and over again, it does affect us. I'm not against anybody going to a movie. We saw a good movie the other night uh, on uh, Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill. There were problems with it. It wasn't a perfect movie. But it showed the historical perspective of what Britain was facing at the end, or not the end, but at the beginning, really, of World War II, uh, just before Dunkirk. And one of the things that I I really liked was the role that was played by, uh, I don't know who the the, uh, actress was, but playing Clementine, the wife of Winston Churchill, and how she knew how to work with him. And there, there was one scene at the beginning where, he had just defended this uh, typist that he had, and she was out in tears, and she said, you know, let me take care of it. And she went up there, and with grace and respect, but firmness, as wife should have at times, she knew how to, if I can use the word, manipulate. I think that's the wrong word, but I'm not sure exactly what the right word is. But to, to bring him around to what he needed to see. She was a helpmate in that way. So there are good things out there. Sometimes we get into a movie and we don't know where it is, but whether it's going to be good or bad. But the things that happened in the church of God started slow. They didn't seem so bad at the beginning, but the worldwide church of God lost its focus. They were distracted. They had wonderful activities, wonderful programs. But somehow they lost focus and we began to have activities that were not connected in the right way to the church. Oh, the words were always right. We always said the right things, but somehow we lost focus. In Kansas City, when I went there, no offense to anybody from Kansas City, I love Kansas City. And a lot of our members, the second largest church that we have in Living Church of God is in Kansas City. But when I went there, they had been fed a diet of self-esteem. So they had a photography club, a poetry club, and various other clubs to build everybody's self-esteem. Now, I'm sure that a poetry club would be very you know, enjoyable for those who like poetry. And those who like photography could enjoy it. But all these various clubs were focused on building your self-esteem, not in honoring God. And so something that is good on the surface can be very negative if the focus is not correct. What happened in worldwide is that we became a social club. 
in so many ways. The second generation came along, third generation, in some cases fourth generation. It's not bad to be second, third, or fourth generation, but too many people were there for all the wrong reasons. And when you see grown men six inches from each other screaming at each other over a basketball game or a call, there's something wrong. There's something missing from what the intent is. So we're going to continue the programs we have, but we're always going to be evaluating what is our focus. What is the purpose of an activity? What is the purpose of what we're doing? The demise of the worldwide church did not end the church. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of the grave will not prevail against it. The church is a spiritual organism. That's even seen in our baptism service when we say that uh, we're baptizing not into any sect or denomination of this world, but we're baptizing you into the body of Christ. Uh, Not the exact word, but we're baptizing you uh, into the body of Christ. And we're doing so by the authority of Jesus Christ. But we're not baptizing you into a denomination of men. Nevertheless, that does not mean that the church is uh, unorganized. or does not. That's double negative somehow. Let me figure that one out. Uh, it, it does not mean that, uh, that we should be disorganized. The church is an organized body. When we go to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4, it tells us that we are to be unified that we always want to keep the unity of the Spirit. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I was talking with somebody here this morning. Somebody came up and said that they'd attended Uh, some of uh, Mr. Uh, McNair's uh, men's weekends. uh, forget what the exact title of it is. We had one down here this last year. And he just wanted me to know that it had changed him in a positive way. And he found out from his mother. His mother said that programs are good. Well, how do you know? Because you've changed. She could see the change in him. Programs that are focused. Programs that have education. Programs where we have the focus on worshiping God. Programs where we recognize that we are a body together. We're all different races. We're from different backgrounds. Uh, Some people are what we call professional, uh, you know, uh, people uh, working more with their head, I guess it is. But I'll tell you what, there are a lot of jobs that look real simple that aren't so simple. I'm reminded of a fellow down in Louisiana many years ago. We used to go duck and goose hunting on his property. And he was telling us, he's never in the church, but he, he was a fine gentleman. And he was telling us about some city folks that came out there and they wanted to build a duck blind on his property. And uh, he let them do it. And he watched them and as they were digging down in that 
clay, gumbo, wet clay that you have in southern Louisiana. They were really wearing themselves out. And finally he went out there to help them out. He said, uh, would you fellows like me to show you how to shovel? And I think one or both of them threw their shovels down and said, yeah, you know, how do you shovel? And so he took a little scoop of mud out of the way, and it immediately filled up with water. And he swished the shovel around, and then he put it in the ground, and he picked it up and threw, and the mud went off the shovel. Before, they were trying to throw it and kept throwing it because the mud kept hanging on. He said, I don't know about you fellows, but I like to lubricate my shovel before I use it. And each time, he would take the time to lubricate it. And so what looked like a slow process was making progress. You know, I don't care what job we have, it's important. And we come from those different backgrounds, and we need to always respect one another and love one another and get to know one another. And so when we get together on these occasions, we we understand that, that we are to build that bond between one another. There's one body, it says in verse 4, Ephesians 4, verse 4, one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And then down in verse 11, it shows us how that we can have that singleness of mind, what, what it is that aids us in that. We know that it is God's spirit in us, but God doesn't work us with us You know, God's Spirit doesn't work with us totally separate from everything else. He says, He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. And the reason for that is the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. God has given us government in His church. He's given us ministers and deacons and others to bring us into unity and to build up the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And notice verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. I got a letter this last week from someone who was taking me to task about something I wrote. And he said, I I know that this is particularly the case because I read, and then he mentioned some publication. And I thought, well, that's really grand. You know the truth about everything that's happening in the world because you read this mostly unknown publication. That was his reasoning. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into, into him who is the head, Christ. You know, there are plenty of people out there, we hear about fake news. And there is fake news in every which direction out there. So much so that the, the people who have created Facebook and Twitter and some of the other, other programs are saying it's broken. I'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow in the seminars. It's broken. And as uh, Sean Parker said, who is one of the founders of, of Facebook, uh, he said, um, how do you put it? He said, 
we, we have no idea, or only God knows, the damage we are doing to our children. And it isn't just fake news, it's how they manipulate people. It's those ways that we're manipulated without realizing how we're manipulated, how we are distracted in the various ways. The church is to be organized. It is to have authority. We see that put into practice in the New Testament. In Titus, the first chapter, verses 5 to 9, we read how Paul told Titus to organize the area of Crete, to put in charge various individuals. He commanded him to do so. Well, let's just turn over there because what follows is also important. But he says in verse 5, first, uh, Titus 1, 5, For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. There was government then in the church. And then he describes the qualifications for elders, unlike Jeroboam who chose the lowest of the people, people that would please him. Verse 10 says, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped to subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, we may say dishonest gain and think, well, they're just trying to make money. Well, dishonest gain can be a following to pump up your ego as well, whose mouths must be stopped. Verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Now, you talk about politically incorrect. That was it. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be be sound in the faith. And he goes on from there. So, the church is to be unified. It is a spiritual organism, but nevertheless, it should have orderliness to it. It should have organization to it. When the worldwide church went into apostasy, God chose another remarkable man, Dr. Roderick C. Meredith, and he chose him to stand up 25 years ago and to lead and to restore the things that were being lost in that apostasy. Now, there were a couple categories of people at that time. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we see that there was a category that, I'll just summarize it here, that did not love the truth. I'm not trying to say that this is the apostasy that took place back then. I'm simply relating here the mindset uh, of what it is that takes people away. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one, and that's yet in the future, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. That did not happen in worldwide. And with all unrighteousness of deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When the apostasy began to set in, and it was more open as opposed to the subtle part of it at the beginning, there were people that were told, you can go out and eat lobster. And they went out that very night and had lobster. They were told they could play golf on the Sabbath, although that was, they tried to suppress that. There were over 2,000 people who heard it in Big Sandy on December the 24th, 1994. They heard that. And they tried to say, well, he didn't say it. But there were people who then began to go out and play golf on the Sabbath. There were all kinds of things that were happening there because people did not love the truth. But they had pleasure in unrighteousness. That was one category of people. Now, I think we have to say that a lot of people were just simply deceived. There were, you, you can't summarize uh, everybody into one category, but that's the bottom line to it all. That's what Christ is showing us here through the Apostle Paul, that there's coming an individual in the future that is going to be very subtle and is going to have great miraculous powers, and people are going to follow that individual. And as Dr. Meredith said, we in the church of God need to take warning of that. Because many people who think they would never follow that leader will do so when the time comes. And hopefully that will not be you or me. And Jude, the first chapter, once again, well, there's only one chapter in Jude. But Jude, I want to go to verse 1 this time. Verse 1 and 2, I was actually looking for Revelation, and I had the wrong verses, in it. and it, uh, it struck me, something I hadn't really noticed there before. Jude, uh, verse 1, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure what your prayer may be, but from time to time, I thank God for calling me, for choosing me, or setting me apart, sanctifying me in that sense, and for preserving me, preserving me in his truth. Because I realize that when that apostasy took place, if I'd made a couple decisions differently, I could have taken in that poison and gone the wrong direction. It was a little bit difficult after you've already proved some things to yourself many years earlier, even as a teenager, this thing of law and grace. But nevertheless, I realize that I have to thank God for preserving me in his truth. Not just calling me into it, but preserving me in his truth. And so there were those who did not love the truth. And there were those who maybe were weak. Who maybe bought a little bit here, or a little bit there. But God called them. He set them apart. And he has preserved them. And a number of those people are right here. And those of us who 
went through that apostasy are thankful for God preserving us in his truth. We should be ever thankful to Dr. Meredith for what he did. God would have used somebody else because the church would continue, but he used that particular man. And I think that God uses imperfect human beings, myself included on that, to test the rest of us. He doesn't choose the person that we would think. He chooses someone that we wouldn't think of. Let's review the history of the global church of God a little bit to see exactly what uh, what happened down through the years. Dr. Meredith held Sabbath services in his home in December of 1992 after he left the WCG. Global Church of God services were inaugurated on January 1993, so in other words, just the next month, a week or two afterward, January of 1993, starting with 41 people and one minister. I always thought it was 40, but it says here 41. Thank you to uh, Monica for going through the uh, Living Church, well, whatever it was, the Global Church News, I guess, and Living Church News to bring so many of these things out. But 41 people and one minister. That's how that got started. And what is interesting is that Dr. Meredith almost immediately began preaching the gospel and a warning to the world. He started the World Ahead radio program. It began airing in Little Rock, Arkansas, K-A-Y, on February the 20th. So the church really started there at the beginning of the year, and by the end of February, he was already on radio that quickly. That year, we had um, two festival sites. Uh, One was in Del Mar, California, with 700 people, and Pigeon Forge with 1,200 people. Just shy of 2,000 people within the first year. Now, of course, most of those people were a part of Worldwide, and they were frustrated by certain things, and he decided that, or they decided that this is where the truth is. This is where it is being preserved, and they followed. In just over three years, the church had grown to a weekly Sabbath service attendance of uh, 6,858, just shy of 7,000 people, served by 126 ordained elders, 223 deacons and deaconesses, and 37,000 subscribers to the World Ahead magazine. That's where we were in three years, because one man stood up to lead at the age of 62, which is the age that many people retire. The first video group was started in Auckland, New Zealand, Literature was translated, that was 1994, literature was translated into the German language that same year. The World Ahead uh, television program aired for the first time on Vision Cable in Canada, May the 6th, 1995. That was about the time that I came along. We started global youth camps, one in Wyoming and the other one at Lake of the Ozarks. I was a part of that, uh, 
meeting virtually every week in the middle of Missouri with another individual to plan that out and start it, and it was a pretty humble beginning, to say the least. We've come a long way since that time. Mr. Sid Hall, in 1996, opened a church in Kenya, East Africa. The church grew, and by 1998, male income had come to $7 million plus dollars. The church was growing. But Satan didn't like that. And Satan got to a few people who allowed themselves to be distracted, to allow themselves to lose focus, to allow themselves to be puffed up thinking they knew more than Dr. Meredith. And so they pulled off a coup, a palace coup, you might say. And Dr. Meredith prayed that his enemies would be scattered, and they literally were scattered in more than seven different directions. He started the Living Church of God, as we know it today, with about 80% of the members, most of the ministry, faithful to him. There were some individuals that did not stay faithful, but they went in various directions. I don't know where all of them are today, but I dare say that I think we're thankful we are where we are, that we made that decision, the right decision at that time. But it started uh, December the 4th, 1998. Later stated that LCG began with five regional pastors and a number of other individuals, seven other ministers for 12 members on the Council of Elders. So we began the living Church of God as we know of today. January the 31st, 1999, uh, Tomorrow's World Telecast began airing on WGN at 6 a.m. So in other words, within a month or, or two, we were already on television once again. Living Youth Camp continued in Northwoods, uh, Northwoods Christian Camp in near Pickford, Michigan. So the, that program continued and has continued to this day in various locations. Living Church of God total income for 1999, that was the first year of living, was a little over $6 million. Uh, today we're over $17 million. I don't know if that includes international or if that's, I don't know, Jerry, is that international or is that, that's just U.S., just U.S. And I know that Canada is about three million and various other places, so it's well over $20 million now. But it was starting out rather slowly, good shot in the arm, so to speak, six million, but the church has continued to grow. The number of baptized people, this is really important, the number of baptized people after January 1st, 1999, this is after living started, have been 5,282. And yet there are those who say the work is finished. We just need to get the bride ready. Now, those 5,282, some of them were younger individuals or people already attending and, and global but 4,196 were added after January the 1st, 1999. Now, some people have died. Some people have gone elsewhere. But the church has continued to grow, and we're over 10,000 people at this time. So the work has continued. LCG has produced 32 booklets and 24 lesson Bible study courses. We have Spanish, French, Afrikaans. German. Uh, we have uh, 
work going out in uh, various other countries, uh, the, the um, <clears throat> Russian language. I find it interesting to see Mr. Smith or Mr. Ames or me speaking in Spanish. <laughs> Mr. Mario Bias has done a wonderful job of lip-syncing and speaking for us. Uh, tremendous job, very quiet job. Mr. Bias is here locally, probably here someplace, and he's doing that job for us. We have a lot of things that have happened in that time since the Living Church of God started. If you look at the history of the world, we've had 9-11, we've had the euro introduced, we've had Hurricane Katrina, we had the, the Fukushima uh, disaster there in Japan. We've had so many things happen and how easy it is to forget it. I was listening on the radio yesterday as I was coming here, and the fellow was talking about you have all these lists at the end of the year, and they start listing all the people who died and all the things that happened, and you forget them, don't you? And, oh, I forgot that that person died. I forgot this happened. I forgot that happened because things are happening so quickly, and it's easy to lose track of where our world is headed. One of the lasting legacies of Dr. Meredith is a sevenfold commission that he gave to the church to preach the gospel of the kingdom and the true name of Jesus Christ, to preach the end time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelitish peoples, to feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as best we can, be examples to the church of God and to the world of Christ's way of life. I hope we're all practicing that in the way we drive, the way we play golf, the way we uh, interact with waitresses and waiters and the restaurants, the personnel that we see here. You know, I think we really do. I think they see a difference. Sometimes we can come up short. I, I can remember some years ago up in, in Michigan, up around Traverse City, it snowed and it was real sloppy and it was a two-lane road for a long ways. And I got behind somebody that was just poking along, poking along, poking along. And I had, you know, I'm always busy, right? We're always busy. And, and when, when does somebody get in your way? It's when you're busy. And it's because we're always busy and there's always somebody in our way. And I was really upset. And so when it opened up to where it was four lanes, two lanes going each direction, I pulled out there, whipped out there, and took off, and there was a light up there, and it changed, and I had to slam on my brakes, and I, I was able to stop, skidding a little bit, and I looked over, and here was a little old lady. And I thought, that could be my mother. Kind of put things in perspective. I was kind of embarrassed by it. It's not the only time I've been embarrassed driving, but it was a lesson. And ever since then, I've, I've tried to be a little bit more patient to realize that this person is driving slow maybe because that person is safest driving slow. Uh, sadly, sometimes it's because the person is texting or doing something else. But nevertheless, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt until you know otherwise. But how we conduct ourselves, we are to be examples to the church of God and to the world of Christ's way of life. Have you ever done something that is kind of embarrassing only to find out, well, that person knows you? That's when it's really embarrassing. 
learn and practice servant leadership in all our dealings with others. Servant leadership was a theme that Dr. Meredith constantly reminded us of. And that as ministers, we're not here to throw about our weight. Or sometimes people say, well, I can do it because I'm a minister. I'm in charge here. It's not the way that we do things. And number six, restore apostolic or original Christianity and all that this implies. And finally, build an atmosphere of radiant faith within the church, within God's church. Now, I'd like to focus a little bit on that sixth point there. Uh, It says there, restore original or apostolic Christianity and all that that implies. That's one of the greatest contributions that Dr. Meredith has given to us, isn't it? He wrote the booklet, Restoring Apostolic Christianity, later changed it to Restoring Original Christianity because apostolic gives a wrong connotation to some people. But the Christianity of Christ and the Apostles... First century or Jerusalem Christianity, which is very different from other places. The book of, the book of Revelation is a tale of two churches, among other things. A tale of two churches. In Revelation, the first chapter, I'd like to give a quick overview here, in just a few minutes, of an overview of the first part of the book of Revelation. In in verse 1 it says, chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Now notice that. It is, in other words, God the Father who gave it to Jesus Christ to reveal to his servants. Rephrase that. You have three players there, so to speak. Things which must surely take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. And John was to bear witness to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and to all things that he saw. Now, what is the very first thing John does with this message when he's given it to him? Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. If you read William Ramsey's book on the letters of the seven churches, which is very, very interesting, especially when you get toward the end of it, Uh, And it talks about Philadelphia and Laodicea and that sort of thing. It's very interesting. But he says because he's not converted or was not converted and had a different attitude and approach toward things, he looked at it from human reason. And, you know, God, uh, Mr. Ames corrected me on this, and it's good. Uh, God gave us a mind to reason, didn't he? But we should use human reason with God's spirit. Or notice human reason must be in in focus with the word of God. If it's human reason apart from the word of God, apart from what God is revealing, then that's a problem. But God wants us to use human reason in the right way within the context of of God and uh, his word. But notice that uh, what I was saying there is that William Ramsey says that the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were kind of an afterthought for John because John had written this book that was almost like the Old Testament apocryphal work, or not apocryphal, but apocalyptic works, uh, the prophets of old, and the New Testament was a series of letters, at least much of it, 
And so John added chapters 2 and 3 as kind of an afterthought. But notice in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. The whole book, chapter 1 through 22, is written to the seven churches which are in Asia. And verse 10, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That shows us the time setting that it is leading up to. That is what the whole book is to lead up to. And I heard behind me a loud voices of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. And what you see, write in a book and send to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he lists those churches. And then we see that Jesus Christ is pictured as walking amongst those seven candlesticks, which represents the seven churches. So the whole book is about, or written to, addressed to, the seven churches, which are the servants of God. You have the servants, which are mentioned in verse 1, the seven churches in verse 4. They are delineated in verse 11. And then chapters 2 and 3 tell us who these people are. But before we go there... Let's go over to Revelation, the 22nd chapter, because there he shows that he wraps it up and confirms what I'm trying to tell you right now. Verse 6, it says, Then he said to me, These are the faith, these are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants, the servants of God, the things which must shortly take place. And then in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. In other words, the churches and the servants of God are synonymous. Chapter 1 and chapter 22 make that abundantly clear. And so when we look at the book of Revelation as kind of an overview, the first six chapters, chapter 1 gives us all this information as to who the message comes from, uh, who is to open it up, and who it is to go to. And then when we get to chapters 2 and 3, it tells us who the servants of God are. And it shows these seven eras, seven stations, uh, states that the, the, uh, the church would go through, down through history. Now, they apply to the original churches. There are lessons that we can learn from each one, even right now today. But they were eras or stages in which the church would go through. And then in chapter 4, it tells us who the message came from. It tells us more about God the Father and the throne that he is sitting on. Chapter 5 shows us more about Jesus Christ, the one who opened up the meaning of this. And then chapter 6 goes through six of the seven seals and leads us up to the day of the Lord. So the first six chapters are preparatory for everything that goes after. Shows who God the Father is, who Jesus Christ is and uh, who the servants are that the message is to go to, and the message is uh, to, to bring us information about the day of the Lord. Now, we also see in the book of Revelation that there are two different women. The first woman, the chaste bride of Christ, is found in Revelation 2 and 3. But it also gives us a broad history in the 12th chapter of the people of God, beginning with Israel originally, physical Israel, and then leading into spiritual Israel, the church. And it's made very clear in the last verse there 
of, of, of Revelation, the 12th chapter, that is not talking about physical Israel anymore because it says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's very clear there, it's talking about spiritual Israel. This is talking about the true church of God. I'm not going to take time to go over there. I think all of you are familiar with it. But Revelation, the 17th chapter, then describes the great whore and her daughters. Now, I hope all of you are taking time to read Restoring Original Christianity, the booklet, but all, because it shows that Christianity as we have it today is not the same as what Christ and the apostles uh, taught. But also I hope that you are reading Dr. Merritt's articles, series of articles in the Tomorrow's World magazine on the Protestant Reformation. I remember when I came into the church, I thought that Protestants were better than Catholics because I grew up as a Protestant. My friends who were Catholic thought that they were superior because they thought they could trace their history back to Christ. And it took a few years to learn, but I finally realized they're all wrong. One is a great whore and the other just little whores. <laughs> now, that may not be politically correct, but that's what the Bible says. And we will be fearless to say what the Bible says. And woe be to us if we are afraid of the truth. And it's very encouraging to know that the men that we have in leadership positions on the church, in the church have that view. Now, we have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We understand that. But we should never back off from the truth. And we have to be careful how we do it. Sometimes people say, well, we just need to be bolder on television. We, we've been thrown off so many or censored so many times in Australia and, and the U.K. and uh, even here in the United States. We say as much as we can, we can write a little bit more. And we can, you know, we, we can tell the truth boldly. We do have to be smart about that boldness as well. Where will the, the next 25 years take us? It's always difficult to know the twists and the turns. I realize that if this work goes on another 25 years, very unlikely I'll be around. Very unlikely. And I think that many of us in this room are in the same, same boat. But I see a lot of younger people here. I see a lot of wonderful young people. Some are deeply converted for their age, and some are yet to be converted. And you're in that stage of life that you should be, with the same level of maturity and spiritual understanding, perhaps. But we don't know exactly where things are going. We don't know who is going to lead the church as years go by, in various capacities, who our leaders will be. I think we can guess in some cases, at least some of the leaders. But we don't know all the twists and turns. Here's what we can know. God is with us as long as we are with him. Christ will never forsake us, nor the Father. And as long as we stay on track, stay focused, don't get distracted, Christ and God the Father will be with us.
And all I can say is that I'm not a Joseph Tkach. I'll just put it that way. And we need to pray for one another that we never do something stupid. I pray that God would let me die first before I would take the church in a wrong direction. I pray that God would use me personally as a vessel for honor and not dishonor. And that when times really get tough, they're not tough yet, when they do, that I'll have courage and dignity to deal with whatever comes up. I hope that that's somewhat your prayer as well. Maybe slightly different, different stage, different place in life. We need to pray for courage. we're, We're on a train that's headed for a cliff at some point here. Maybe that's a bad analogy, but we're headed... We're headed into a war. And we should never forget that. This isn't a game we're playing. As Dr. Meredith used to always say, we're not playing church. It's serious business. Now, we're going to have a lot of fun the next couple of days. And that's, that's great, and that's wonderful, and we want to have those, those fun times. But we should never forget why we're here And the purpose with which God has called, as I say so often, if God is not calling everyone, why is he calling anyone? He's calling us to do his work. And that is what we will do. Satan will continue to take us off course to distract us as much as he can. But we do not have to fall into apostasy and break up. It tells in Joshua 24, Verse 31, that Joshua and the elders who outlived him did stay on track, did not get distracted, but somebody else did after that. We see Elijah and Elisha. Elisha carried on for Elijah. Not that any one of us, whether it be Dr. Meredith following Mr. Armstrong or me following him, we're we're not Elijah, Elisha. The type is there. The type in the sense that we can be faithful in what, where we go. We can know that there will be two women, two churches at the end. The great whore and her daughters and the chaste virgin that will marry Christ at his coming. And regarding the latter, we see that there are two different attitudes within the church. And we can read of those in Revelation, the third chapter. One has uh, an understanding of right government, has the key of David, and you can take that back to Isaiah, the 22nd chapter, is it? Uh, Where it shows that it's not talking about the identity of Israel, as some like to say. It's talking about right government. That's the subject of the key of David, the context in which that is used. That group walks zealously through open doors. It has a little strength, but keeps God's word and does not deny his name. That group is going to be preserved. They will be there at the end, and they will be kept from the hour of trouble that's going to come upon the whole earth. Then we read of the latest sins. They're lukewarm, feeling rich and increased with goods. But they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and they don't know it. Because they have been distracted because they have lost the vision. 
because they've gotten off track. And yet they are God's people, and he's going to force them to make a choice through the fire of tribulation. These opportunities to be together are important, as was explained last night. The bonds that we can build here, the knowledge that we can have and grow in, the opportunity to worship God in the way that we act, the way that we relate with one another. But we must never forget the reason we are here. Again, as explained last night, we must never forget what happened in worldwide and also what happened at GCG or the Global Church of God with some leaders when people forgot the reason for their calling and the place of their calling. So let us go forward. Let us go forward boldly and courageously and never forget why we are here, why we are here and why God called us.